the entire foundation of a contractor's lifeblood fits on the contract. And we have to remember that it's worth putting some time and some effort into making sure that your contract is exactly the way it should be for your operation. Welcome to Rockstars of Remodeling, a podcast presented by Pro Remodeler Media, where the best and brightest stars in home improvement share actionable insights with like-minded industry standouts like you. I'm your host, Drew Barto. I spent 13 years as the Director of Marketing for a replacement window and door company in Pittsburgh, where I learned a lot from some of the great minds in the home improvement industry. I aim to bring many of those voices to you on this show to help you gain more leads, close more sales, and boost your bottom line. Let's rock. Hi, everyone. Joining me on today's show is D.S. Berenson. D.S. is the managing partner of Berenson LLP in Washington, D.C. He serves as general counsel and special counsel to home improvement contractors and remodeling industry manufacturers on a full range of industry matters. I invited D.S. onto the show today to share some dangerous practices that could get contractors into legal trouble. You might be surprised to learn that you're unknowingly doing something on this list. D.S., thanks for joining me today. My pleasure, Drew. Thanks for having me. Before we learn about some of these dangerous practices, uh, could you please give us a little more background on you and your firm? Sure. Who doesn't want to hear about law firms? Um, <laughs> you know, it, there's not too much to tell. We're all ex-IRS, SEC, Attorney General people. We have a national practice. For about 30 years, we've been exclusively representing home improvements and remodelers, which is much different than construction guys. And uh, that's all we do. We've written a lot of books that nobody ever bought. We get a lot of speeches that sometimes people listen to, sometimes they don't. Um, so we we have about 800 home improver and remodeling clients around the U.S., the majority of the top 500, and, and that's that's where we make our bed. Oh, that's great background information to to set you apart and let, you, let everybody know that you kind of specialize in this industry, uh, and I think this is great information for our audience. So let's, let's get right into it. Um, now, I have a marketing bias because that's my background, uh, so let's start there. What are some common contractor marketing or, or advertising practices that, that might raise the ire of state and federal agencies? Well, that's about a five-hour speech, but to, <laughs> to, to bring it down into something that's more digestible, one of the problems in our industry is that we're always focused on generating the lead, right? First, we generate the lead, then we have to close the sale. And that's sort of the entire one-two process of the industry. But somewhere since the 1970s, we've gotten lost in the lead generation aspect. And we've got a lot of consultants out there and a lot of lead gen processes that are essentially illegal from improper use of a BOGO to ghost discounts to bad use of energy saving guarantees. And depending on what state you're in and what products you're talking about, you've got different triggering lines that will cause you to be under the investigation of an attorney general or worse, you have to deal with a 1-800-SUE lawyer. So the problem is that anytime we put a marketing piece on the streets, you want to make sure it's clean, it's got a clearing example in it that you're not going to get hit with a claim that it's deceptive or misleading, right? I mean, you know, is it sales puffery to say these are the best windows in the world or is, it, or is that actually deception? So we, we get a lot of attacks, like I said, from government agencies on marketing pieces. And the problem is that if you get hit on one, they're probably going to find out that you dropped 600 or 6,000 or 60,000 of these over the past couple of years. And you can find yourself on the wrong end uh, of, a, of a lot of fines and citations. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I, I'd say the other large issue, the number one liability in the industry is also then telemarketing. 
and okay. when we're talking in seminars about telemarketing, I get a lot of guys and they're like, well, we're not, we're not telemarketing. Um, you are because the laws were rewritten oh, about 10 years ago, 10, 15 years ago. So as soon as you pick up the phone and call a lead, that's, that's a telemarketing call. Even though a lot of our guys are, are familiar with do not call registries at the state and federal level, they're not familiar with the fact that if you hit that person's cell phone, you have a, a separate issue of liability. Again, a lot, there's a lot of information there, but the problem is we've got a lot of marketing and advertising uh, and a lot of telemarketing issues that are landing our clients in, in some real hot water. I mean, not to put anyone to sleep, but there are about five or six 1-800-SUE lawyers out there. And for the past couple of years, they've been making millions and millions of dollars against uh, home improvement remodeling companies for uh, lead calling violations. And, and that's all they do. Uh, and the class actions are just, are just you know, ruining contractors left and right, and nobody talks about it. So we like to say that it's much easier to stay out of trouble than it is to get out of trouble. And uh, once you clean up your advertising and your marketing, um, usually you can move forward with that and not have to worry about problems. But until you do that, it's kind of a minefield out there. Oh yeah. Now you mentioned the, 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 the 1-800 uh, sue, sue you lawyers, but in addition to lawyers, what's more likely to be the cause of you getting caught? Is it the agencies looking actively or is it your competitors turning you in? What do you, what do you see out there? It's interesting that you ask that question. In this economy, we are getting more and more competitors turning, mm. uh, you know, other companies in kind of cannibalizing the market, which is a very distasteful practice. But the difficulty is we never seem to recall that when we're dropping the direct mail piece or we're running a, a cold call list or, you know, we've got an, an insert or a flyer, that some of the people picking that up happen to work for the attorney general. And so these people are seeing what we've got out there on the street. And a number of times when we get hauled in front of uh, Ohio or Pennsylvania or uh, Washington or Florida, uh, it turns out that we, we dropped or we called uh, actually somebody that was working in the attorney general's office. And that's how, they, that's how they call wind of it, more so than just complaints coming in from disgruntled customers. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I think that's like... It's a good good tip that you know clean it up before you before you get caught and those fines stack up. Now that's that's on the marketing side, but now if we turn to labor a, a little bit, you know a lot of companies are using independent contractors. You know what kind of legal issues should home improvement companies be aware of when it comes to uh, 1099 installers? I'd have to say the majority of our clients, the overwhelming majority of the industry, uses independent contractor installation labor and. Probably for about 15 or 20 years, that has been the number two liability in the industry, far and away, the reclassification of uh, independent contractor labor. The reason it's always been so problematic is that if you get one installer who argues that they should have been an employee, they weren't really supposed to have been an independent contractor, you're looking at this domino effect. Because what happens, Drew, is they come in and they're going to argue that you owe federal and state payroll taxes, mm -hmm. you owe workers' compensation, you owe them overtime, you owe them health benefits, you owe them retirement benefits, whatever you would have given to an employee, they're going to argue they should have gotten. And so you get one installer, uh, you can easily get into a six-figure case. And then again, if you get one of those, you know, 1-800-SUE lawyers, you're looking at a class action. And, oh, wow. uh, and a lot of the... Yeah, a lot of the attorneys general are, are hot on this issue as well. Uh, Massachusetts, Ohio, uh, even some of the southern states are very big on the reclassification because their view is that we're 
<clears throat> we're abusing the innocent worker uh, by treating them as an independent contractor instead of an employee. So it, like I said, it's got this kind of a domino effect and it can create a, a, a huge problem out there. So um, the good news is that the death of the independent contractor structure for installers has been greatly exaggerated. We, we can run independent contractor installers in every state uh, and, and do it safely, but it's gotta be done correctly. There's a, I like to refer to it as a, a brick wall of protection that you have to build around the relationship uh, it goes way beyond just having the right agreement in place. It goes to your onboarding protocols and how you uh, engage these guys in training and how you compensate them. But, but if you do it correctly, even out in the People's Republic of California, you can be protected on it and, and not have to worry about the risks of, of the reclassification. Because a lot of times when we do get a client whose entire installation crew is reclassified, it ends up putting them out of business. Uh, just because, like I said, the effects can be so ruinous. Oh wow! And and, and you know, I, a lot of people get in this industry. They're they're technicians. They were they're good at their tra their their trade, their craft, and they don't think about these finer points of, of of business and and contracts and you know, crossing your T's and dotting your I's. So staying on the topic of labor a bit, what are some contractor need to knows as it relates to sales rep employment structures? Oh. That's, that's an interesting point. It's, it's related, but it's not the same. While we can structure installers as independent contractors, if we build that brick wall, it literally cannot be done with sales representatives. So I'll, I'll take a moment and expand on that. There are only three ways you can structure your sales representatives. They can be employees on a W-2 basis. They can be independent contractors or they can be subject to something called 3508 of the Internal Revenue Code. But if you try to structure them as independent contractors and you get audited by Wage and Hour, Department of Labor, the IRS, or you get sued on it, and somebody on the other side of the fence knows what they're doing, you're going to lose. And the reason is you can't argue that a sales rep is an independent contractor because we're telling these guys what to sell, who to sell it to, when to sell it, how to sell it, and how much to sell it for. And so the control factors there uh, will simply kill any argument that these guys are actually independent contractors. But there is a, a little-known section of the tax code, uh, which we refer to as 3508, uh, which does allow you to issue them a 1099, but they're really only, quote-unquote, independent contractors for tax purposes. Uh -huh. So... If you structure them under that code section, um, you don't have to withhold uh, payroll taxes, and, and usually at both the federal and the state level, but technically they're still employees. What does that mean? It means they could still come after you for wrongful termination and sexual harassment and things like that. But in truth, sales representatives never do that. They only come after us for one thing, and that's commissions that they think you know, they, they're owed but weren't paid. If you're, if you're running your sales reps and you're giving them a 1099, and when I say 3508 of the Internal Revenue Code, um, you don't know what I'm talking about. And you've got a very, very serious problem there that's just waiting to bite you in the rear end, unfortunately, because you, you just can't run sales reps as independent contractors the way you could installers with that brick wall. The brick wall will not work for sales reps. Well, that's a very good distinction, a very good explanation that you offer there on, on the differences and how you can, uh, you know, how you can classify sales reps. And so 
staying with sales, but not necessarily on the on the labor portion of it. What are some red flags you see with with like your customer facing documentation, like a sales contract? You know, what steps should contractors take to ensure these documents are on the up and up from a legal standpoint? Yeah, you know, it's funny. It's also a good question. Our industry, and and I hope I don't give offense here. Our industry tends to be very incestuous. A lot of times, whether a company is doing a million in sales or ten million or or a hundred million. The documentation that we're using has often come from wherever we worked before, huh. or it's wherever whatever our competitor was using. And we're like, well, you know, they must know what they're doing. They're XYZ company. And so we have a tendency to uh, quote unquote acquire uh, contracts and other documentation from others in the industry. And that creates the ripple effect of bad paperwork. And it's always been fascinating to us at the firm that there's this endemic failure in the industry that we're writing millions of dollars of business on a piece of paper and we don't really take the time to structure that piece of paper with the necessary operational protections that are unique to our product let alone the state and federal uh, legal protections right so basically our view is always that our clients are giving short shrift their customer facing documentation, especially their, their contracts, because you want the contract to be, yes, enforceable under state and federal law. Okay. And you want it to be operationally unique, right? So if I'm selling windows, there are some things about, you know, condensation and, and things like that. And if I'm selling siding, it's something else, it's bathroom, it's mold. And every product has some unique things that ought to be in there. But you also want it to be easy to understand. You don't want it to be threatening in the home. Because mm-hmm. the, the customers can get scared if they're looking at a document that was, you know, looked like it was written by some Harvard attorney. You want it to be in plain English, and you want it to be easy to use. Whether you're doing a hard copy closing or you're do, doing an electronic closing, you want it to be easy to use because the sales reps, as our weakest link, are going to screw it. A good contract should really be a work of art. It should it should protect me as the owner of the company. It should protect the business and the products I'm using. It should certainly be federally and state compliant. But it should also have those operational protections. It should be a nice thing to look at, easy to understand, easy to use. And, you know, again, when we talked about advertising and marketing, it's the same thing with the contract. If you get in front of the wrong agency or the wrong attorney and your contract is missing a disclosure or you don't have, uh, you know, four copies of the rescission right when you're selling to a husband and a wife in a home, they're going to get you on that. And they're going to get you on that for every job you've sold let's say for the past three years, the past five years. And so you can be looking at just an absolutely ruinous set of fines, let alone a public relations nightmare. The entire foundation of a contractor's lifeblood sits on the contract. And we have to remember that it's worth putting some time and some effort into making sure that your contract is exactly the way it should be for your operation and the location in which you're operating in. Now, a lot of these issues you brought up today, uh seem like they're they're certainly not simple simple issues to address they they require deeper understanding to to protect you know the con- for the contractor to protect themselves and i understand that you hold seminars to address these topics and, and a whole lot more can you talk a little bit about some of those events and, and what you might have coming up soon uh yes i don't mind a shameless plug we don't do a lot of seminars we do one or two every four or five years it depends on the industry and, and how the economy is doing um it just happens that this year, we are going to be doing two of them. There's one in uh, the PGA Golf Resort in Palm Beach Gardens, Florida on October 10th and 11th. 
And there's another one we're doing in San Antonio on November 9th and 10th. And we'll be covering basically all the nuclear disaster concerns for 2024, all, certainly all the top five liability issues for the industry. We've also, this year, we've got uh, survivor man Les Stroud coming in to discuss the uh, mental and emotional difficulties that uh, home improvement owners face in the changing environment. And we're also going to be focusing a lot on the use of artificial intelligence and lead generation. And uh, both of those should be some very interesting conferences. We have a lot of fun and they're pretty informal. It's only for owners and exec levels. If uh, if anyone does have the interest, if you just Google up HILC 2024 for Home Improvement Legal Conference 2024, if you Google that up, all the links will show up and the agendas are there and you can see what we're going to be doing there. That's a, that's a great conference for contractors, uh, DS. And I, I appreciate that you put that on for people that are listening today in, in our audience. I think when you're starting as a, as a contractor and starting a business, uh, these are just things you overlook and it's not, in not always intentional. You're not in trying, trying to deceive, uh, people and, and get yourself in trouble, but you just don't know what you don't know. Right. And so I love what you're doing here. I love that you're putting these conferences on these seminars for contractors. I appreciate you giving this information to, to my audience. DS Berenson, everyone. DS, thank you so much for sharing this incredible information. Thanks, Drew. It's always a pleasure to work with you. Thank you for listening to Rockstars of Remodeling. As promised, there were some amazing takeaways that you can use to build a better business for yourself, your employees, and your customers. If you've got an idea for a future episode or a guest I should invite onto the show, I'd love to hear from you. And don't forget to follow Rockstars of Remodeling on Spotify or SoundCloud. And click the like button on this episode. Until next time, rock on.